because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about blobs. But first, as always, shout-outs. Shout-outs to Aaron, Aaron, Amber, Amy, Angie, Autumn, Brody, Seth, Carolyn, Carolyn, Chuck, Dan, Daniel, David, Dill, Edgar, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Fabian, Harley, Harvey, Heidi, J. Mark, J., Jamie, Jason, Jason, Jeff, Jenny, Jennifer, Jim, Joe, John, Joshua, Joshua, Juliana, Kelsey, Kenny, Kira, Kyle, Lash, Laura, Laura, Rutho, Lauren, hi Lauren, Lawrence, Lily, Lindsay, Lionel, Madison, Maggie, hey Maggie, Michaela, Manning, Martin, Matt, Matt, Matthew, Megan, Megan, Nanashi, Nick, Nick, Pablo, Rachel, Reed, oh god, I hope it's Rachel, I think it is, Rosa, Sage, Sarah, Sarah, Shelly, Suzanne, Tosh, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Travis, Trey, Troy, Veronica, and Vincente. If you want to be like cool kids, head on over to Patreon.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you get extra episodes, you get a whole bunch of fun stuff, hopefully. And uh, you meet the coolest people in the world because the coolest people in the world are my patrons. Next up, let's head over to Paranormal News. Paranormal News. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Paranormal News. The first story in paranormal news, Nessie Watchers film two Loch Ness Monsters. They're not monsters. And the person's name that did it is a name that I have no idea even remotely how to pronounce. So I'm just going to guess. Ellen Ophedhagen. Look, E-O-I-N is not a name. So Ian, maybe? Ian Ophedhagen. Ian again had been watching a live Loch Ness webcam when he spotted something odd in the water. Now, the footage he captured, which I will post to the Facebook page, shows two black objects moving through the water towards the bottom of the frame. The white object further up is definitely a boat, so ignore that one. Now, this person, E-O-I-N, said, The day of the sighting was extremely windy, and as you can notice from the trees moving over and back, when I noticed the two strange shapes, first they were either side of each other and not behind each other, going in the same general direction. Never did I think it was two humps from the one animal. This sighting did not give me that impression. The two strange shapes were identical to each other, and that also gave me the impression that it was two separate objects. I was quite startled to see two possible Nessies on the webcam. Now, let me just say, this is Kurt here, let me just say, I haven't watched this yet. I was waiting for this episode before I watched it. So, now that I have said that, let's watch it. It's only 44 seconds, so definitely a boat up on top, definitely two humps at the bottom. It's just so far away, I, I don't know what to make of it. 
<clears throat> and they even say that given the video's lack of resolution and clarity, however, it's unlikely that two objects will ever conclusively be identified one way or another. Right now, it just looks like two steady objects in the water. I'm not saying it's not Nessie, but Nessie ain't moving, and you'd think that boat would have noticed Nessie. I mean, it seems like it's not too, too far away. All right, so that was the, uh, that was the first one. I'll put it up on Facebook. I kind of want your guys' opinion and what you think. Was that Nessie? Was that two Nessies? I really hope that was two Nessies, because I want a family of Nessies living in Loch Ness to keep Nessie going for a millennia to come. Alrighty, up next, alleged Bigfoot howl recorded in Kentucky. Whiteburg's resident, Sean Hammonds, see that name I can get, recently recorded a soul-piercing howl coming from the forest. Now, once again, I'll post this on the Facebook page as well, so you gotta check the Facebook page, Paranormal Almanac, to uh, tell me what you think about this one. Again, I've not watched it till just now, so let's see what it, uh, let's see what it has on there. Let's watch this video together. Oh my god, it's six minutes long? If you have weird sap, but if you've... Alright, skipping kids, ahead. He says they sound nothing like elk. Shut up. Shut up. Skipping Thank ahead. Words. Let's watch that clip one more time, but with the audio enhanced. Alright. Oh, yeah. So, apparently that was a Bigfoot howl. I guess, um, I don't know. I don't know what to think of that one. I'm not too, uh, impressed with that one. That could have been anything. That could have been an owl. That could have been a bird. It definitely doesn't sound like, he said, that's no elk, bear, or coyote. I think it could be a coyote. That sound pierces your soul. It's unlike anything I've heard in these mountains. Okay. Hey, look. I am not a Bigfoot expert. The only thing I am an expert on is saying don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. But besides that, I'm no Bigfoot expert. So what the hell do I know? Maybe that is Bigfoot and maybe that's the best Bigfoot footage ever and I'm just an idiot. Who knows? I don't think so, but who knows? Okay, up next, Tom DeLong's To The Stars Academy has allegedly obtained metamaterials not of this world. So I've talked about the To The Stars Academy a while ago. Hopefully you guys remember that episode. Uh, Tom DeLong from Blink-182 has said that uh, he has something. The To The Stars Academy has obtained precious and, quote, baffling metamaterials, which they claim are simply not of this world. Now, he posted it to Instagram, and it's just a photo real close up of this material. And the materials are said to have been sourced from, quote, an advanced aerospace vehicle of unknown origin. On account of its chemical structure and composition, these materials appear to defy the laws of nature, at least on Earth anyway. Now, these materials are not from any known existing military or commercial application. Now, Steve Justice, who's the current COO of To The Stars Academy and a former head of Advanced Systems at Lockheed Martin Skunk's work, Skunk Works, is on the front foot, is on the front foot with the announcement? That is terribly worded. Now, he has confirmed that despite the materials coming with a detailed and verified, quote, chain of custody, To The Stars Academy will be conducting their own research to find out what they're working with. 
The manufacturing technology required to fabricate the material is now, only now, becoming available, but the material has been documented and in documented possession since the mid-90s. So hopefully, hopefully, the To The Stars Academy have got their hands on metamaterial from a UFO and they can prove it. If they can prove it, that'll be a huge step towards disclosure. Up next in paranormal news, event honors celebrated Bigfoot researcher's birthday. Creature Weekend will be held will be holding its 8th annual Creature Weekend conference October 18th through the 20th at Salt Fork State Park. So, if you're near there, if you know where the hell Salt Fork State Park is on October 18th through the 20th, you should go to this because this year's event includes a Friday night presentation to honor Bob Gimlin's 88th birthday. Hey, pal, it's cool, man. Bob Gimlin's 88th birthday, which includes individual speeches from cryptozoologists celebrating Bob's life in Bigfooting, and a presentation of a special banner to Bob signed by all the dinner's attendees. So it sounds like it's going to be very, very cool. It'll have a cryptozoology flea market, which is free and open to the public, which is awesome. Paid ticket holders will be able to listen to additional cryptozoology presentations by Bob Gimlin, the man himself, James Renner, Adam Davies, and Scott Carpenter. So again, if you happen to know where the hell this is, because this is a terrible Columbus, Ohio, maybe? Let's see. Let's see if I can find out where the hell this is going to be. Here we go. We'll click on lodging. That's got to tell me at least roughly where it's at. Hey, if I got to click 15 times to figure out where something is, it's not very well laid out. Getting angry here. Now it's just important that I find it because, frankly, it's pissing me off. Creature Weekend Conference. Fine. Let's Google it. Four minutes later. Alrighty. So Salt Fort Lake Park. Salt Fort... So I'm sorry. Salt Fork State Park is indeed in Ohio. So it's Ohio close to the Pittsburgh border. So if you're going to be in the Ohio area from October 18th through the 20th, make sure you check this out. If you do go to this, make sure you tell them it is a terrible website. But if they want to have me there, it's a great website and it's fantastic and I can't wait to see you all there. Up next, a semi-connected story to the first one. The Loch Ness Monster spotted for the 12th time this year as experts claim, hot weather is forcing beast to the surface. So obviously it's a little bit of a misleading. No expert knows exactly why there's been spotted. It's probably not the hot weather. But Nessie's most recent sighting came at 9.30 p.m. last Thursday when something broke the lock's calm surface and walking tour company boss, Mr. Cobb, who was on holiday with his brother, was shocked. He said, I've been coming to Loch Ness since 1992, and I know what a boat wake looks but a boat wake looks like. But there were no boats around when this thing surfaced. I never believed in Nessie, but now I'm not so sure. What I saw was just weird. I'm sorry. You're a walking tour company boss around Loch Ness, so it has to be somewhat connected to the Loch Ness to Nessie itself that you never believed it? Come on, man. He said it was dead calm, warm. It was a dead calm, warm night, and this thing broke the surface a few hundred yards away. I couldn't make out a head or anything, but there was something in the middle that was different to the rest. 
I watched it for about 90 seconds. It moved and then disappeared. I don't believe Nessie is a dinosaur or anything like that, but there is something in there for sure. So two Nessie stories on one episode? Of course I'm going to do them. But I have one final article that I just had to put on here. So finally, the last, the last news story with probably the best uh, headline ever. The ghost of a masturbating ape haunts the hallways of a grand country estate in Dorset. That's right. The haunted Athelhampton or Athelhampton Hall is a popular wedding venue, but it has another thing that it's famous for. The ghost of a randy monkey haunts the halls of a grand English country estate, and titillated tourists can often hear the masturbating monkey laughing while masturbating in Dorset near Dorchester at the Athelton or Athelhampton, Athelhampton or Athelhampton Hall. Why? No idea. Let's see. The 15th century house was originally built by the Martin family, whose crest features an excited monkey sitting on a tree stump. The estate's motto was, He who looks at Martin's ape, Martin's ape will look at him. I highly doubt any of this is true, but it's a great story with a great headline. They've said, We've heard that Martin the monkey who haunts the house loves to scratch his privates while swinging around. Now, we didn't see him, which is a shame, because it would have been a real sight. Apparently, he's not terrifying, quite friendly is what we've heard. So if you want to see the ghost of a masturbating monkey, look no further than Athelton, Athelhampton, sorry, Athelhampton Hall in Dorset near Dorchester. In near Dorchester? I don't know. Go to England, see a masturbating monkey. What do you want from me? Okay, one last thing before we get to the story at hand, and that's the Ascension, the Portal to Ascension Conference. If you head over to ascensionconference.com, you will see the Portal to Ascension Conference. It's going to be held October 4th through the 6th in Irvine, California. They were very nice enough to offer me a badge to come down and take a look and possibly maybe sometime in the future do something at this conference. There's a lot of cool people that are going to be there. Whitley Strieber being one of them. Travis Walton. I mean, a lot. They've got some great guests. And there's going to be an extraterrestrial awareness and UFO disclosure, true world history of ancient aliens and ancient civilizations, and the evolution of consciousness and the ascension. And now, like I said, they have a ton of guests, a ton of speakers there. I am not going to be a speaker, but if you guys want to hang out with me and you're in Irvine, California, or you can get to Irvine, California on October 4th through the 6th, I will be there. Now, I probably won't be there on Friday, but I definitely will be there all day Saturday. And depending on the uh, the, the uh, panels, it looks like I'll probably be there a Sunday as well. So, again, if you want to hang out with me, here is the perfect chance. We can go around and check out the conference, see what they have to offer. Seems like it's going to be kind of cool. I can't wait. I'll tell you more about it as it gets closer to it. I want to make sure I keep you guys, you know, up to date with everything that's going to happen there. But, like I said... If you want to hang out with me, October, oh God, I just clicked off it. October 4th through the 6th in Irvine, in Irvine, California at the Atrium Hotel, the Portal to Ascension Conference. The day passes are $99. Three day passes with all access is $222. And the live stream ranges from $22 to $99. I assume it's $22 per day. I don't really know. It doesn't really say, but not terrible prices for the amount of speakers that they have definitely check it out 
it could be worth it. I'm looking forward to it. And finally, Feedspot.com has listed Paranormal Almanac as one of the top 15 paranormal radio shows or podcasts of 2019. I only have you guys to thank because without you guys listening to the show, I probably wouldn't have kept doing it. Well, I might have, but it probably wouldn't have been as cool. Uh, the patrons, I definitely have you to thank. So for everybody, to, to Feedspot.com, to whoever voted for it or picked us, Thank you so much for making Paranormal Almanac one of the top 15 paranormal radio shows or podcasts of 2019. And the group that I'm with is absolutely incredible. I listen to most of these podcasts. So to be put in there in any way, shape, or form is incredible. I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Feedspot.com. Alrighty, let's take a quick break before we get into the blob. So quick break, guys. Alrighty, back from the break. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever seen the movie The Blob? Now, the one from 1958 or from 1988? If you haven't, it's about these people finding a blob after a meteorite hits the Earth. And that blob just basically, spoiler, starts killing everybody. If you don't, it really doesn't matter, but... Did you know that The Blob is based on a true story? Yeah, the movie The Blob is based on a true story. And since I can't hear your answers if you knew that or not, I'm just going to continue on with this episode. But the answer is yes. Yes, it's actually based on a true story. And this isn't one of those things where it's the most tiniest kernel of truth that they made an entire movie around, like The Conjuring or anything like that. No, this is a huge chunk of the blob story taken right from the headlines, right from the news. And the year it happened was 1950. On September 26th, to be exact, when two veteran Philadelphia police officers, Joe Keenan and John Collins, saw what they thought was like a glittery parachute floating down from the sky. Now, they said it looked like a sparkling mass of a parachute. And they thought, hey, that's odd. You know, it's 1950. Why in the hell is there a parachute floating down from the sky? So they drove over to get a closer look. And that's when they saw something that was definitely not a parachute. When they got to the site, they had to hold up their flashlights. Obviously, it was dark out. When they got to the site, it's dark out. They had to hold up their flashlights. And when they turned them on, they, what they saw was a purple glittering mass about six feet in diameter and about a foot thick in the center. Let me say that again. A purple glittering mass, six feet in diameter, a foot thick in the center. Now, the cops said it looked like purple jelly and that this jelly was pulsating. Not only that, but when the officers turned off their flashlights or turned them away from the blob, the jelly seemed to glow like it was made of a bioluminescent material. Now, these guys, thankfully, were not stupid. It's 1950. This stuff doesn't happen all the time, but... Since they're experienced veteran police officers, they weren't dumb. So the first thing they did was they called for backup, but they stayed right there, keeping an eye on the blob. So already these two guys are my favorite. Joe Keenan and John Collins so far are awesome. 
Now, I say so far for a reason. Now, the backup got there really quick. It was two more police officers named Frank Edwards and Joe Cook. And sure enough, they saw this blob. They got there within about 10 minutes. Now, they decided that here's where they get not so smart. They decided that someone needed to touch the blob. No, they don't. You see a purple pulsating bioluminescent material blob that came down from the skies? The answer is no. You don't need to touch the blob. But they said no. Someone needs to touch the blob or get a sample. So they drew straws and Sergeant Joe Cook lost. So what did he do? Well, he reached out and grabbed a handful of the blob. He said it instantly broke apart in his hand. Kind of like Jello. If you grab Jello, you know, break apart. With tiny globules sticking to his skin. Again, like Jello. Now, how he didn't freak out and cry is beyond me. But within seconds, these globules evaporated and all he was left with was, quote, an odorless scum on his hand. Which is way more than would have been on my hand, even if I drew the short straw because I would have reached out to shake the hand whoever had the longest straw and then pushed them right into the blob. I am proud enough to admit that I would wimp out and not put my hand in a blob. Now, while they stood there watching the blob itself, well, it started to evaporate and it was completely gone within 30 minutes total time. And that's very important. Remember that amount of time, 30 minutes. Now, the main thing these four experienced officers agreed upon are this, the main things I should say. One, the size and color of the blob. Once again, purple, six feet in diameter, about a foot thick in the center. Two, that the blob was a living organism. Hey, 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 it's cool, buddy. The blob's not outside. The blob was a living organism. This was not jello. This was not something man-made. This was not something they had seen before. Whatever it was, was pulsating and seemed to be alive. And three, the fact that this iridescent blob seemed to, quote, vibrate of its own accord. Now, the news uh, actually got a wind of it because how are you going to keep that kind of a story quiet? And it was carried on the front pages of the Philadelphia Inquirer as, quote, flying saucer just dissolves, which is a bit of a misleading headline. So that's why it took me a little bit of time to find it. Now, I knew it was coming from the Philadelphia Inquirer, but I didn't know exactly what to be looking for. Then I found it. On September 27th, 1950, the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote this story, and then it was syndicated nationally by the Associated Press. And it says, Pfft, it's gone. Flying saucer just dissolves. Fourth, four South Philadelphia police officers had a new explanation last night for what happened to those flying saucers people are always seeing. They dissolve. That's what happened last night to the airborne object first seen about 10 p.m. by patrolman John Collins and Joseph Keenan. The two officers said they were patrolling in a red car on Vare Boulevard near 26th Street when through the windshield they saw what appeared to be a parachute drifting slowly down from the upper air ahead of them. When first seen, the thing was at treetop level, they said, and appeared to be about six feet in diameter. Now it settled in an open field near 26th Street. After summoning Street Sergeant Joseph Cook and Patrolman James Casper, wait, those are the same names that I just said? Oh, crap, I got one of the names wrong. I apologize. It's not Frank Edwards. I apologize. It is James Casper. I, that's my mess up. 
Uh, and James Casper, his driver, they went into the field to investigate. The four officers stood a few feet from the object, they said, and turned their flashlights on it, whereupon it gave off a purplish glow, almost a mist that looked as though it contained crystals. Collins stepped forward and tried to pick the thing up. The part of the mass on which he laid his hands dissolved, leaving nothing but a slight odorless sticky residue. Within 25 minutes, as they stood watching, the entire substance had evaporated. It was so light, they said, that it did not even bend the weeds on which it lighted. Weirdly worded, but okay. Sergeant Cook notified the FBI a little sheepishly since he pointed out he'd have nothing whatsoever to show them when they arrived, except a magic circle in the ground where something purple and quite evanescent once had been. So I got that straight from the Philadelphia Inquirer, because like I said, I if they if they mention a newspaper article, I always want to get it because I want to find out exactly what was really said at that time. Not 20 years later, not 10 years later, not 15 days later, but right when it happened. Now, there was another magazine article, Fate Magazine, from July 1954, and it said in October 1950, during the period of the as-yet-explained Lavender Sun, a purple glowing six-foot globe settled lightly onto a field in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, scarcely bending the grass with its weight. One policeman who observed its fall from the sky touched it with his finger, whereupon the weird object commenced to dematerialize. Within an hour, it was, and within an hour or so, it was a shapeless, gelatinous mass. So this one definitely does not have the details quite right. But then again, it was four years later, but they're still talking about it. And it still goes on to say, whatever these strange aerial objects are, and wherever their origin may be, they certainly merit the objective attention and study of men of science, whether stationed in universities or in the Air Force Project Saucer. They are definitely not hallucinations, misinterpretations of conventional aircraft, mass hysteria, or mirages. Okay, so again, I wanted to point out both of those so you know exactly what the press are talking about because I really think that's very important. But from there, let's skip ahead seven years after the incident. And let's switch over to Hollywood. And that's when producer Jack H. Harris was looking for a monster movie. So he asked his friend Irvine H. Milgate to come up with some ideas. He said it's got to be a monster movie it's got to be in color instead of black and white. It can't be a cheapy creepy. It's got to have some substance to it. It's got to have characters you believe in, and there's got to be a unique monster never before done. And the method of killing the monster would have to be something that Grandma would have cooked up on her stove. Now, Millgate, for whatever reason, read these articles or was in Philadelphia, doesn't really say, but he remembered the article. He remembered the things about the blob, so he pitched the blob. And that is what we are getting when we watch the Blob movie. In essence, that is the Blob movie. Now, obviously, when he stuck his hand in it, he wasn't sucked into it or killed by the Blob. But the origin of the Blob is exactly like we hear right there. Now, the FBI asked that the Air Force look into it. But since the Blob had evaporated, the Air Force declined. So again, there was no real evidence of this. But this wasn't the only blob or glob or whatever you want to call it that's fallen from the sky. Far from it, in fact. There have been a lot of them. Now, I'm going to come straight out and say some of these I could find a lot of details about and others that I can't find enough proof or enough details, but I added anyway because they did fit the blob story and they did seem to be 
sort of reputable. And I'll call out the ones that aren't, don't worry. So let's start at the beginning. The oldest recorded blob story I can find is from January 21st, 1803, when, quote, a shooting star was seen in the skies over Poland. So this is not limited to America by any, by a long shot, by any stretch of the imagination. They're all over the world. Now, the odd thing was the meteorite's trajectory was low and, quote, whizzing, and it flew over the witnesses. Now, these witnesses saw it crash to Earth and went to investigate it. They said, hey, you know, there's, something, there's nothing else going on. It's 1803. Let's go check it out. Now, when they went to investigate it, they found a big, super hot rock, you know, like meteorites are. But when the townspeople returned the next morning to see it in the light, instead of a rock, they found a giant blob. And that shouldn't have been too much of a surprise to you. This whole episode is about giant blobs. So here's where the story sucks. That's it. That is all I can find about this. No other details. What color? No idea. What happened to it? No idea. That is all the legitimate info I can find about this incident. Now, there is a ton of BS that have been globbed on, sorry, blobbed on to this uh, story. But when you break it down, the stuff that I can find that seems to be real is just what I read to you and nothing else. So from there, let's sadly move on to the evening of November 11th, 1846 in Lowville, New York. And that's when people saw another meteorite hit the ground. You're going to start seeing a pattern here. Meteorites are the pattern. So they saw a meteorite hit the ground. When they went to investigate, they found, quote, a heap of foul-smelling luminous jelly. It was about four feet in diameter. And just like the blob story at the beginning, this four feet in diameter foul-smelling luminous jelly evaporated within 15 minutes. Now, it doesn't say how long it took them to get there, but I would have to guess that it probably took them 10, 15 minutes to get there. And then after 15 minutes, the blob evaporated. Hint, that's 30 minutes. Now, this one has a lot of corroboration because it was written about in Scientific American and many other newspapers. It really, really made the rounds. Now, a lot of papers retracted the story after the fact for a few reasons like wrong city, wrong amount of jelly, or, quote, too moonish to copy. And I don't really know what they meant by that, but I don't really know what that lingo meant from, 19, from 1803. But here's some chunks of all the people that wrote about this. Uh, November 11th, 1846, luminous object fell in sky, fell the most fetid jelly about four feet in diameter, which weighed 442 pounds. This is one where it was the wrong size, the wrong weight. Then December 18th, 1846, a wonderful meteor, wonderful meteor from the London Times, uh, December 18th, 1846. This meteor allegedly fell at Lowville, Lewis County, New York, on the night of November 11th, 1846. So this one was retracted because they got the wrong location. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. That one was actually okay. The next one was retracted because they got the wrong location. They wrote it as Lowell, Massachusetts, not Lowell, New York. Uh, then the Scientific American, November 28th, 1846. Then the Northern State Journal, from December 2nd, 1846, 
Some wag has given the editor of the New York Sun an account of a meteor which fell at Lowville about the middle of last month. The story looks a little, quote, too moonish for us to copy. A few days ago, um, let's see, Alexandra Gazette, Alexandria Gazette, December 22nd, 1846. A few days ago, we published a paragraph from a New York paper giving an account of a wonderful meteor which appeared and fell near Lowville in that state. The postmaster of that place has been written to for further information and replies, that is a hoax. No such meteor was seen at all. Mr. Ballacourt was identified as the postmaster. That has since been determined to be in, that has since been determined to be incorrect. So they contacted the guy. They didn't know who they contacted. This guy said, I don't know what you're talking about. That's bullshit. That guy turned out to not know what he was talking about, to not be the postmaster. Uh, lastly, uh, Northern Journal between November 12th and December 31st, 1846, failed to find any news about this meteor. And some people say, well, that's proof that this never happened. It was 1846. It is very hard to determine what happened on a specific place on a specific night in 1846, even if it was a four foot in diameter blob that fell from the sky. So anything before the early 1900s, I cut them some slack because they weren't the most connected of times. I'll put it that way. Okay, that leads us to debunk time. There are dozens, and I mean dozens of sites that say on September 28th, 1969, a meteorite hit the earth. Hey, crappy websites, it's meteorite, not meteor. That's just basic stuff. The minute it comes down to earth, it's called a meteorite. They might be giants taught me that. Well, I actually kind of knew that beforehand, but they might be giants retaught me that. Very simple. If you're going to be talking about something that hit the earth from sky, don't say it's a meteor. It's a meteorite. So let me tell you the bullshit first on this one. On September 28, 1969, scientists collected more than 200 pounds of jelly-like material following a meteor shower over Murchison... I'm sorry, Australia. You know I love you. Murchison, Australia. Now, these scientists and later NASA found amino acids, the chemical building blocks of DNA within the substance. So, basically, they found 200 pounds of space jelly blob that hit the ground in Australia. That is huge. That's the story of the century. Why aren't we taught this in school? That is proof from life from outer space. They found the building blocks of DNA in this stuff. It was still alive. It fell to Earth and it was still alive. Well, here's the problem. It's a grain of truth in 200 pounds of bullshit. Yes, on September 28, 1969, at about 10.58 a.m. local time, a meteorite fell, and yes, it was near the town of Murchison, Victoria, in Australia. And yes, 220 pounds of meteorite was found. All of that is true. But there is not one recorded instance of jelly found. Not one. Now, this isn't a cover-up. The people that were there, the people that saw the meteorite from all walks of life say, nope, no jelly, just a big-ass meteorite, 220 pounds of rock. Now, the meteorite fell apart as it came down into three chunks. That fragmented further upon impact, spreading out over five square mile radius. See all of these details I have? The reason I have it is because there are a ton 
of actual real details out there. It doesn't need the bullshit jelly part of this. It is still an impressive story, and here's why. This meteorite did have organic matter in it. The amino acids part of that bullshit story was true. The meteorite contained common amino acids such as glycine, alanine, and glutamic, glutamic, glutamic acid, as well as unusual ones like isovaline, isovaline, and pseudoleucine. Sure, pseudoleucine, which is a complex, mix, complex mixture of alkanes that was isolated as well, similar to what we find in the something experiment. Now, serine and thorius, you know what? The chemicals are usually considered to be earthly contaminants. They were conspicuously absent in the samples. So they found something with these amino acids, but without the earthly contaminants that they usually find in those amino acids. This story is cool enough. It did not need the jello blob bullshit at all. We have a meteorite that is still being investigated today, still being analyzed today. That fell in 1969. I could find a ton of reputable websites that talk about the investigations and the analyses, the analyses, sure, of this meteorite. Now, this next one isn't much better, but I will say I can't 100% debunk this one. I don't know what to make of this next one. Okay. On August 11th, 1979, Sybil Christian was standing on her front lawn in Frisco, Texas, watching a meteor shower. Again, meteor shower. So far, so good. Then the story goes that Sybil noticed three purple blobs on her lawn and that these were filled with metal shavings or metal and were radiating heat. So she calls the authorities and while she was waiting for them to arrive, one of the blobs evaporated. Sounds very similar to the other ones. We got purple blobs. They evaporate in about 30 minutes or so. So the story says that one of the samples was actually sent to NASA for analysis. Here we go. So, depending on where you get your information, some sites say that NASA immediately called her up and said, analysis showed that this was an organic alien life form. My bullshit meter is high on that claim. That isn't what NASA would do. Why would they call her up to tell her that? If it truly was an alien life form, they would scour her yard for every speck of evidence and boom, it would disappear. There is no reason for them to call her back and be like, Hey, hey, Sybil, it's NASA. Um, you know that thing you found? Guess what? Organic alien life form. Crazy, huh? Talk to you later. None of that. Fuck that. It's dumb. Now, some other sites say that the day after NASA called her to tell her that they would, you know, do the analysis and that they found something, the day after that, they called her and said, oops, never mind. It's industrial waste. I personally think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think that the, the sample did get to NASA. I did think that NASA did an analysis of it, because why wouldn't they? And I think that they didn't know what it was at first. Then they determined it was industrial waste. Now, there's this guy named NASA geochemist Doug Blanchard. He is all over this story. 
I can pretty much confirm this guy exists. I found a lot of stuff to say, yeah, he's probably real. But I can't confirm that he actually said this. So, huge grain of salt time. He says, the blobs were found by, Miss, by Mrs. Sybil Christian on the front lawn of her home in Frisco, a farming town near Dallas. She described them as looking like smoothed whipped cream, but purple. Now, the blobs, which are about the size of a telephone and weighed a couple pounds apiece, were warm to the touch and contained small chunks of lead. One melted away on the lawn, but police took the two remaining samples to the Heard National Space Museum nearby, and eventually they sent it to NASA. I believe most of that. I don't know if he actually said that, but I do believe that's how it got to NASA. I could find a lot of information that seemed to corroborate that the Heard National Space Museum did get a sample from Sybil Christian and it does seem to have gone somewhere for analysis. Now, the assistant director of the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History, Robert DeLulio, said that the blobs came from a battery reprocessing plant about two miles away from Sybil's home. He said that he discovered a caustic soda, which was used to clean impurities from the lead salvaged from old batteries. He said it resembled a reddish blob-like substance. Now, does that conclude the case? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Because other websites say Sybil was shown the caustic soda later on and said it didn't really look like her blob at all. It was a different color, different consistency. But other websites say she did admit that she tried to wash away the blobs with a garden hose. And many scientists think that's why the caustic soda didn't match up exactly because she added water to them. So they expanded, they changed a little bit. Now, take this next part with even bigger grain of salt, but there is one source that says Doug Blanchard said that the blobs are in a laboratory deep freeze and that it's like plum pudding, round, solid chunks that remain after the goo goes away and that the blobs attracted water, emitted acidic liquids, and contained uranium. But... Only one source has that info. So ultimately on this one, I just don't know what to believe. There are so many pieces to this story or this story is fragmented into so many pieces over so many different websites that I really don't know what was true and what's not. Like I said, I do think that Mrs. Sybil Christian found something on her lawn. That seems to be real. It went to a nearby museum and eventually ended up at NASA. That seems to be real. Was the museum the Heard National Space Museum or the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History? I don't know. What about that industrial waste caustic soda? Again, I don't know. She said she saw it. Didn't really look like it. But I don't know what to believe with this one. That's ultimately this one. I'm leaving this one as can't debunk it. I don't know what to believe. What do you guys think? You tell me. You tell me what you think about that one. All right. I got to move off that one because it hurt my brain to find out all those little details. If you if you just focused on one website, the story is completely different from the next. So let's move on. The next one is short, but it's interesting. December 1983, a grayish oily gelatin fell on North Reading, Massachusetts. People found it on the streets, on their lawns, and even on the roofs of houses. The reason I added this one is in a little bit, I'm going to get to a debunk part of it. Just remember that people found it on the streets, their lawns, even the roofs of houses. 
So it doesn't really fit the main debunk theory. That's why I added that one. I, um, there's another instance of viscous blob rain that happened on a few nights in the August of 19, in August of 1994. This viscous rain fell on Oakville, Washington. Now this event also occurred during the annual Perseid meteor shower, which is really weird because almost all of these occurred during that meteor shower. Scientists say that these blobs contained ento enterobacter cloake and pseudomus fluorescens. Fluorescens. Basically, here's what they contain. They contain a bacteria capable of causing severe illness. So these blobs that fell on this town, Oakville, Washington, these blobs were really bad. They were also analyzed, and again, it's hard to find out what was found from that analyzing other than these weird things that I just read you, that bacteria that can cause severe illnesses. Again, the reason I added this one, it doesn't match up with the main theory debunk, whatever. Okay, this next one, all I could find was that on the evening of November 3rd, 1996, a meteor was reported flashing across the sky of Kempton, Tasmania, which is just outside of Hobart, apparently. Now, the next morning, residents found a lot of blobs, but this time, the blobs were white and translucent. The next one, on November 28th, 2001, blobs were found in Manchester, England. Residents called authorities to report, quote, lights falling from the sky. Now, a lot of people say it was during a meteor shower, so that explains the lights falling from the sky. Now, I can't find a ton of details, but apparently investigators found blobs on the lawn. Here we go. This one might be explained, though, by this next case. Because in Dorset, in January of 2012, 11 years later, but still, hold on, a bunch of blobs were found on a lawn following a hailstorm. So not a meteor shower. These were described pretty much like the others, but this one has an earthly explanation. It has been confirmed what this one is, and I think, it I think it's the same response for that last one from Manchester. Analysis on these blobs showed them to be a sodium polyacrylate granule, a kind of superabsorbent super polymer used in agricultural fields. The conclusion was they were most likely already present on the ground in their dehydrated state, but had gone completely unnoticed until they soaked up water from the hail shower and grew in size. Now I looked up what this sodium polyacrylate granules would look like like with water they look like white blobs not 400 pounds of white blobs but little white blobs in the in the lawn they were only found on the lawn both of these stories it does seem to match up and like i say the second story the one from dorset in 2012 it was confirmed that's what these blobs were one of the few ones on here where they could 100% say that's what these blobs are. Alrighty, next up, February 2013 in the Hamwall Nature Reserve in England. They found a bunch of slimy blobs. And again, despite what a ton of sites say, this one too has an earthly and the most common explanation. Here we go. This is the most common explanation for blob sightings. These ones at the Hamwall Nature Reserve in England were unfertilized frog spawn. 
Now, this leading theory for many of the blobs revolve around frogs and frog spawn, and for good reason. Frog spawn swells when wet, gets weird and blob-like, and it's just clear goo. Now, it's not purple, it's not pulsating, it doesn't have bioluminescence, it's clear goo, it's blobs. Now, I am definitely not saying that all the blobs I've talked about tonight are frog spawn. Far from it. Just remember the amounts that these people found. These amounts, these colors, do not correlate with this frog spawn theory. But this one in February 2013 at Hamwall was definitely frog spawn. It does seem to explain a lot of the blobs. In fact, if you see small blobs in your lawn or in the woods if you're hiking, there is a good chance it has something to do with frogs or frog spawn. Now, I like I said earlier, you know, remember this, remember this, remember this. Frog spawn can't be found all over streets, on their lawns, and even on the roofs of houses. It's kind of grayish oily gelatin, but that amount doesn't add up. Same thing with Sybil's case, same thing with the one from the 50s, same thing with one from the 60s, from 1969. These things were not purple. Or these things were purple. They weren't clear. They weren't small little piles of clear blobs. And these frog spawn blobs, just picture like jellyfish thrown on your lawn. That's kind of what they look like. Now, author Mark Pilkington wrote a 2005 article for The Guardian titled The Blobs. Since at least the early 18th century, the most common earthbound explanation for the mystery goo has been that it is something vomited up by birds or animals. The Welsh naturalist Thomas Pennant, writing later that century, considered this answer. He considered this the answer, I'm sorry. Blobs is frog spawn puked up by amphibian-eating creatures, though no frog eggs have ever actually been identified within it, and most finds are a good deal larger than your average frog. A recent refinement of the concept is that if a frog is swallowed prior to ovulation, its regurgitated egg duct will swell dramatically when wet. Dramatically and six foot or four foot in circumference, that doesn't add up. But it does mention something very important to this episode. That brings us to star jelly. That's right. Star jelly is a thing. Star jelly has been found for centuries. In the 14th century, priest and physician John of Gaddesden mentions Stella Terra, which is Latin for Earth Star. Now, he mentions this in his medical writings. He describes the blobs as, quote, a certain mucilaginous substance lying upon the earth and said that it should be used to treat abscesses. Probably not the best idea to use with frog spawn or whatever the fuck blobs are, but okay. Then another 14th century Latin medical glossary has an entry for... Eulago. This material was described as, quote, a certain fatty substance emitted from the earth that is commonly called a star which has fallen. An English Latin dictionary, an English Latin dictionary from 1440 has an entry for stera slime, which is a medieval Latin term for a shooting star. Now, it was written about in the 17th century as well in this poem. As he who quicker eye doth trace a false star shot to marketplace, doth run a space 
and thinking it to catch a jelly up to snatch. I just wanted to say a jelly up to snatch. Uh, then let's see, 1968, this was written. The shooting stars end all in purple jellies. That's important. They even bring up, in 1678, they're bringing up these purple blobs. Again, not frog spawn, purple blobs. Purple jellies after meteors were written about in 1678. So something weird has been happening after meteor showers for centuries, and they all seem to end up in purple blobs that people have called star jelly or rot of the stars. In 1803, star jelly was found in Germany, and it was found in the snow the day after a meteorite was seen by the townspeople. The reason I'm bringing all of this up is to show you how long this has been happening. This has been happening for centuries. Star jellies like this one, star jelly stories like this one, do seem, some of them, do seem to be explained away by frog spawn. But most do not. Because most seem to evaporate after 30 minutes. That is a very common thread for all these. Fun fact, frog spawn does not evaporate after 30 minutes. And even though frog spawn does swell in size when it's wet, it does not get anywhere near the size of some of these purple ooze blobs. Most frog spawn blobs are the size of an American quarter or maybe your cell phone. They definitely are not six feet, four feet, two feet, none of that. And scientific analysis on one blob resulted in the following, quote, concluded that the specimen didn't contain any DNA, plant or animal. So it is actually unlikely that the substance has a connection with the animal or plant life in question. Oh, and this shouldn't have to be said, but do not under any circumstances eat blobs you find after meteor showers because at best you might be eating frog spawn or industrial waste but at worst you're eating something that science still can't explain science has been working on for centuries and cannot explain what we do know is meteorites falling stars whatever you want to call them shouldn't crumble away from rock into giant purple blobs Science tells us they should be rocks. But why are these things seen all around the world, usually after meteor showers, all drying up within 30 minutes for centuries? That leads to the question, what are they? And again, why do they appear after meteor showers? The more I dug into this, the more I found these same common threads, story after story after story. Now, there are more stories. I didn't include them all. I could have, but it's just same. It's more of the same. Purple blobs, they evaporate after 30 minutes. They pulsate. They wiggle. They vibrate. There's always different descriptions of that part of it. And they all were found when either a meteorite hit the ground or right after a meteor shower, most of the time after a meteorite had hit the ground. I honestly don't know what to think of star jelly or the blobs. Like I said, I, I, I believe science. Yep, I agree. Some of these, yep, you're looking at frog spawn or split open frogs or something really gross from frogs. 
but it doesn't explain even a fraction of these for me. It definitely doesn't explain that 1951 at all. These were experienced police officers that lived in the area. They saw something fall from the sky. When they went to investigate, they found exactly where it landed. And what they found was not a rock, was not frog spawn. It was six feet of purple blob that was a living organism that, uh, what did they say? It didn't say vibrate. They said um, pulsated. That's it. That was pulsating. That is not frog spawn. And like I said, there are a ton of newspaper articles or things being written about these things for centuries. The you know It's found in books for centuries and then newspaper articles. There's a ton of them that all say the same stuff. Again, I'm not saying it's an alien. I'm not saying that it's... I mean, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what the hell they're from. I don't know how to end this one, to be honest with you, because usually I have some opinion, either left or right, of what it is. Yes, it's fake. No, it's real. It's definitely this. It's definitely that. This one? I gotta be honest, guys. I have no idea what to think of this one. I think that uh, the next meteor shower, I'm going to be more closely on the lookout for purple blobs, I can tell you that. Uh, if you guys find some star jelly, purple blobs, whatever you want to call it, for the love of God, don't eat it. I personally wouldn't even touch it, but put it in Tupperware. Close that up. Seal that shit up and throw it in the freezer. Let's get it analyzed. Let's get every one of the samples that you guys can find. Take a million photographs. Take a million photographs or videos of it dissolving or evaporating. Like I say, scoop some up, put it in a Tupperware and throw it in the freezer. Don't let anybody eat it. But um, then video the rest of it to see if it is 30 minutes. And if it's 30 minutes or less, what the hell is causing that? That's very specific time frame for these things. I, I don't know what to think. You guys tell me. You've heard all of these. Like I said, there's a lot more. They're from found all around the world. What do you think? What are the blobs? What's your opinion? Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. But we're in release, so we're losing him like.